Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Jaws of Justice Radio investigates how we can achieve justice from a system of laws deeply rooted in economic, social, and political inequality. We hope you will listen. On October 17, 2023, Professor Alex Vitale gave the Coke Affair Lecture at UMKC. He is Professor of Sociology and Coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center, who has spent the last 30 years writing and consulting about policing. Professor Vitale is the author of The End of Policing. Alex Vitale's message is that most of the things we currently ask police to do could be done in other ways at a lower total cost to society. We still need armed police to confront violent criminals, but could we use unarmed law enforcement officers to confront most types of activity? Alex Vitale gives examples of replacing police in schools with counselors and others who actually address the needs of students and caregivers so that schools become safer places of learning. We'd be safer and more prosperous as a society if we replaced the war on drugs with drug treatment programs. We should refer people with mental illness to mental health professionals who are more likely to help them rather than kill them. Gangs arise from a lack of economic opportunities due to the inequality in the U.S. Existing law enforcement responses to that problem have made the problems worse, not better. On Jaws of Justice, we talk about state violence, primarily in our nation's prisons. Alex Vitale's 2017 book, The End of Policing, provided much-needed studies of the issues with police. In this broadcast... Professor Alex Vitale presents clear guidance for how to chart a path toward policing reform and alternatives. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. All right, good evening, everybody. I spent the afternoon with uh, some of my uh, colleagues at uh, Decarcerate Kansas City and attended with them a hearing at City Hall. As you know, there's a discussion about building a new jail. And because of local organizing, there has been some effort to push back on this idea, and a commission has been formed to explore potential alternatives to using incarceration as the primary tool for addressing problems of public safety. So the topic of conversation in today's commission hearing was about domestic violence. Well, we, we hear this issue of domestic violence and we think, well, obviously, you know, there are dangerous people. We need to protect the well-being of women and children in their own homes. And so there must be people who need to be controlled by policing, disciplined by incarceration. You know, in the words of one of the commission members, you know, there are some bad people who need to be locked up. But as the conversation emerged uh, or developed over time, what emerged were some interesting themes. Oh, you know, there's housing insecurity plays a real role in the vulnerability of women to domestic violence. 
because often they can't relocate successfully from their abuser because they don't have the resources to switch their housing. Costs are going up. Incomes are not matching those increases in costs. Women's salaries don't match men's salary, right? So there's a problem with housing. And then someone said, well, you know, mental health is just a central issue here. And we don't have mental health services for people. And someone else said, yeah, well, what's needed, you know, is some financial independence that, that women who come into court don't want their abusers arrested and sent to jail because they're often the primary breadwinner in the home. What these women want is for their families to be repaired, for there to be assistance for their families, not Xing people out, throwing them away, pushing them into a system that causes them to lose their job, lose their, their housing, lose their ties with their family, become involved in a culture of violence that is endemic in carceral settings. So when we look more carefully, what we see is that so much of what we think of as domestic violence is driven by problems related to people's basic needs not being met, of people not having the economic security that allows them the flexibility and freedom to get away from someone when they need to, or to have resources to help them make their families work better. About three years ago, a member of the New York City Council, Tiffany Caban, and I proposed a plan for New York City that involved creating family resource centers, one for every city council district in the city, that would not wait until a family is in a complete crisis mode, not wait until someone has been horribly injured or killed and then putting yellow tape around the crime scene and then putting someone in prison, but would instead be a resource for families before things get to that point. And by having them in every neighborhood, they could be culturally appropriate. They could speak the languages of that community. They could be aware of the cultural histories of those communities and the way in which marriages are organized or gender relations have occurred historically so that the interventions would be useful to those who need them, but we couldn't get the funding for it. We're not providing adequate housing for people who experience domestic violence. We're not funding community-based support centers for women and children in need. We're not providing community-based mental health services for both offenders and victims who turn out to be often interchangeable. Yesterday's victim, tomorrow's offender. We're caught in a politics of austerity, or what I call a politics of austerity and criminalization. We've systematically defunded mental health services. We have defunded social housing. We have defunded public schooling. And then when problems of past homelessness, people having mental health crises, disciplinary problems in school emerge, we turn that over to the criminal legal system as if somehow they have the solution to those problems. But they don't have the solutions. They manage those problems. They come in after the damage has been done 
and look for someone to punish based on this fantastical idea that if we just punish people enough, that this will change their behavior. But when has this ever been true? This is not solving the problem. And this is the fundamental problem with the way we think about public safety. We've come to believe that we have this singular choice when confronted with a problem of insecurity, which is policing and punishment or nothing. And then when we turn things over to the police and it doesn't work, it produces horrible, racially disparate outcomes. It produces violence, whether legally justified or not. We say, well, okay, perhaps we should reform the police make them friendlier, nicer, more professional, better trained, so that we don't have the violence and the injustice and the racism. But it doesn't work. Following the police killing of Mike Brown, not too far away in Ferguson, and the uprising that emerged, we were told, don't worry, we're going to fix the police. We're going to reform the police. President Obama created a task force on 21st century policing filled with the brightest minds in policing and community advocates and formerly incarcerated people. But unfortunately, the challenge to the committee, the charge to the committee was to restore public trust in the police, which created a series of what we call procedural justice reforms, things like implicit bias training, improved uh, hiring standards, getting police to wear body cameras. This has not improved the situation. The officers involved in the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis had received implicit bias training, de-escalation training, mindfulness training, were wearing body cameras, were operating under a new, more restrictive use of force policy, we're operating under a new bystander policy that explicitly said that officers had an obligation to intervene when they witnessed misconduct by a fellow officer. But the four officers just stood there and watched George Floyd get choked to death right in front of them. None of these reforms work. And the problem is it's because they can't work because they fundamentally misunderstand the nature of the problem. They imagine that if we could just get the police to professionally and properly implement the law, that this will automatically benefit everyone equally. But this misunderstands both the nature of policing and the nature of the legal systems that they have been tasked at times to interact in, with and enforce. It, it imagines that the legal, uh, the system of laws that we have, when properly forced, is just automatically beneficial to everyone. There's a famous 19th century saying, the law in its majesty forbids both the rich and the poor from sleeping under bridges, stealing bread, and begging in the streets. But of course, the rich don't need to do these things. Only poor people do. And the neutral professional enforcement of those laws merely reproduces economic inequalities built into the economic arrangements in our society. 
Another example would be the war on drugs. One of the leading causes of arrest in the United States to this day. We've had this war on drugs for over 50 years. No lives have been saved. No one's been prevented from getting drugs. We have overdoses through the roof. Life expectancy in the United States is declining in large part because of drug overdoses. And yet police are making literally millions of arrests every year, putting millions of human beings into cages, thinking that this is somehow improving public health or public safety, and it doesn't. So why does it persist? Because it wasn't created to produce public safety. It wasn't created to improve public health. The modern war on drugs emerges out of the Nixon administration in the wake of the victories of the civil rights era. It was created to solve a set of political problems. The Republican Party wanted a strategy to try to win over white Democratic voters in the South to the Republican Party in the wake of the victories of the Civil Rights Movement. Now, they couldn't bring back formal segregation, so they mobilized the war on crime and the war on drugs to signal to white voters that the Republican Party would become the new home of racial animus, of racial inequality. Now, this is not just armchair history. The central figures in the Nixon administration have come forward who were in the meetings where these decisions have been made and have, have said this was the conversation. It had nothing to do with public health or public safety. It didn't really have anything to do with drugs. It was a way of demonizing political enemies for political gain. And the neutral professional enforcement of the drug laws reduces more race and class inequality in the United States. And the solution to this can't possibly be to give narcotics officers anti-bias training. We have to end the war on drugs. It's a fundamentally unjust project. We don't need narcotics units. We need more medically-based drug treatment on demand, we need harm reduction interventions. We need targeted economic development initiatives. This is how we improve public health and public safety. And in fact, Nixon's own advisors on drug policy argued for exactly those things, even in a Republican White House. But they were ignored, overruled for political purposes. And then a problem of public health was turned over to the police to manage, which is produced horrible outcomes for all of us. Here in Kansas City, there's been, uh, there's a plan for reducing violence in the community and for improving public safety. And all through it, it calls for more mandatory implicit bias training for members of the criminal legal system, police, judges, courts, officials, probation officers, all the rest. The solution to the racial disparities in the criminal legal system in Kansas City, it turns out it's because, oh, people just didn't think about their unconscious internal racial bias. Every study ever done shows that this training is worse than useless. It's worse than useless in two ways. One is that it, police resent and the research shows that in some cases, 
racial disparities in police abuse get worse after the training. But it's, use, it's worse than useless in another way, which is that it obscures the real issue. It's a way for politicians to say they're doing something about the racially disparate outcomes of policing without actually doing anything. It's the perfect solution because it's like, no one's at fault, it's all a big accident, it's a misunderstanding, and could you just please, please, you know, please shoot fewer black people in the future? No one's held to account, no one has to take any responsibility, nothing has to actually change, and nothing does change. Cities spend millions of dollars on this training and nothing changes, because how could it? It assumes that the problem of policing is accidental, unconscious, individual level bias that emerges in discretionary moments of decision making. But this completely misunderstands the problem. First of all, we have a problem of explicit racism in American policing. When we look for it, we find it. The chat rooms, the Facebook pages, the, the transmissions between officers when the public gets to hear them, there's a lot of explicit racism. It's not accidental and unconscious, but it's also a mistake to limit the analysis to accusing individual police officers of being racist. In a lot of the big cities now, a majority of police officers are non-white. New York, LA, DC, Detroit, Chicago, you know, Baltimore, the chiefs, Philadelphia, DC, you know, the, the chiefs are non-white. There's a problem in, of institutional racism, but the institution of policing was formed with the explicit purpose of reproducing racial inequality. That was the point. If we look at the early origins of policing in the mid to early 1800s, we see it emerge directly out of three interlocking institutions three moments of social conflict where policing emerges as the solution. And these are the management of mobile slave populations in the South, colonialism in the West, and resistance to mass industrialization in the North. And in all these cases, racialized practices and ideologies are mobilized to justify police repression of those on the losing end of those three systems of exploitation. I argue the earliest police force in the United States was the Charleston City Watch and Guard, which forms in the late, very late 1700s, to manage mobile slave populations. In Charleston, Savannah, New Orleans, the emerging industrial centers of the South, slaves worked outside the home of their owners. They're very different from the plantation system that we normally associate with slavery. They're earning wages on wharves and warehouses, workshops that are returned to their owners, and they must travel through the city every day to earn those wages. In Charleston, there are more of these mobile black slaves than there are white people. And this is a huge cause for concern for whites who fear slave uprisings, revolts, street crime, but also the formation of black society. Reading groups, black associations, speakeasies, 
and policing is created to prevent that from happening. So that is the history of the institution, reproducing the color line. And hiring a black police chief doesn't just make that history disappear. There's an even bigger problem. There's a problem of structural racism built into the decision to turn certain kinds of problems into police problems, like the war on drugs. Let's talk about community policing related to this, right? Community policing, it sounds like a great solution to our problem. Don't we want the police to know the community, to be sensitive to the community's concerns, to adjust their practices based on the input of the community? It sounds great. But when we actually look at community policing, and many people have in many different cities, what we find is the police have their own idea about who the community is, what the community standards should be that this is not a co-equal relationship. And that in fact, this primary idea of community policing is that the community is supposed to bring its problems to the police, and then we're supposed to work out solutions to those problems. But what tools do the police have to solve our community problems? Guns, ticket books, nightsticks, handcuffs, do they have access to stable housing, community-based drug treatment, mental health services, jobs for young people, high-quality educational opportunities? No. They don't have any, any of the tools that would actually create healthy and safer communities. So community policing is just reinforcing this austerity criminalization politics that says we're not going to provide you with any of the things that you actually need. And when problems emerge, we're going to tell you you can either have policing backed up by courts and jails and prisons, or you can have nothing. And this is the false choice that drives so much of the politics around policing, jails, and incarceration. And it's a completely unnecessarily false choice because we do have other options. We don't have to accept the austerity criminalization politics that says policing or nothing, and when policing doesn't work out the way we were told it would, then we give them even more money to reform themselves in ways that don't work, that just reproduce the false choice. So what do we do instead? Well, you know, the first thought is always, how can we expand the criminal legal system to better incorporate some of these other tools? So we put a social worker in the police station. We give the police some mental health training. We create a few special courts to help people who are having mental health or substance abuse issues but it's still contained within the logic of the austerity criminalization paradigm. The logics of how those services deliver are do it or else, do it under the supervision of a parole officer or a probation officer, pee into this cup before you can get any services, do things the way we tell you to do them or else. doesn't work very well. We can't train police to both be violence workers, and to resolve someone having a mental health crisis. 
these two things work at cross purposes, which is why between a quarter and a half of all people killed by police in the United States are having a mental health crisis. And the solution to this is not to give police more training, not to pair police with mental health outreach workers. It is to get police out of the mental health business. They don't even want to be in the mental health business. Talk to any police officer. They hate it. They know they don't provide any value to these interactions. They feel helpless. They know that they often make the situation worse. But they throw up their hands. It wasn't their idea. They did not defund mental health services. They did not create the war on drugs. They did not create mass homelessness. They have been given the job of managing those problems without any of the tools that would actually allow them to solve them. So how do we do it? How do we get them out of mental health? You're listening to Jaws of Justice on KKFI. We're hearing Professor Alex Vitale's presentation to the UMKC Cock Affair Lecture on the Politics of Public Safety, Police Reform, and Alternatives. We'll be right back after this. Eco Radio KC, a locally produced exploration of positive solutions to the ecological challenges we face as we work to create a healthier future for our community and the planet. Hear from regional and national guests, find out about upcoming events, and learn how to keep yourself and your family well. Tune in each week from 6 to 7 on Monday evenings or listen anytime at kkfi.org slash podcasts. Who says ordinary people can't make a difference? Regular people started their own community radio station in Kansas City. KKFI has been on the air now for over 30 years, supported by the community. KKFI's history is online at kkfistory.org. That's kkfistory.org. Thank you for listening to KKFI. Be sure to like and follow your community radio station on social media at KKFI 901FM as we are now adding new content to our social media sites every day. And thank you again for supporting this station since 1988. Now the calendar for the week of November 13th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri provides free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America is a very active group of mothers and others. You can learn where their virtual meetings this week will occur at momsdemandaction.org. Please check the calendar at moresquare.org for events you can attend and be involved. Monday, November 13th at 6 is the More Square Monthly Issues to Action meeting. And Tuesday, November 14th at 5 p.m. is the Notasaki meeting. Thursday, November 16th at 10 a.m., Empower Missouri's Community Justice Coalition has a virtual meeting. For more information, go to empowermissouri.org. 
Thursday, November 16th, 5 to 7 p.m., Casey Mothers in Charge, Hope and Healing for Survivors of Homicide Support Group, meets at the Casey Mothers in Charge office, 3200 Wayne Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. Thursday, November 16th, 6 p.m. at the Maddie Road Center, 148 North Topping Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri, or on Zoom, Corey's Network is having a Grief to Relief seminar. For more information about the program, call 816-834-9161. Friday, November 17th at noon is Empower Missouri's Friday Forum, The Usefulness of Unions. This is a virtual event. Go to empowermissouri.org. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. The list is updated daily. My name is Terry, reminding you that these events and more can be found on the Jaws of Justice radio page on the KKFI website, kkfi.org, as well as on the Jaws of Justice Facebook page. Stay safe. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay close to your dial and stay well. We'll now return to our show. Alex Vitale speaking on issues of policing. You're listening to Jaws of Justice on KKFI. We're hearing Professor Alex Vitale's presentation to the UMKC Cock Affair Lecture on the politics of public safety, police reform, and alternatives. Well, it can be done. Places are doing it. It's not one size fits all. It has to be tailored to local needs, partnered with local resources. It has to be culturally appropriate, but we have a lot of models out there. We need to expand community-based mental health services. In New York, we have what's called the clubhouse model, right? We gotta be thinking about what can we do to prevent problems from reaching the point where someone says, well, of course, now we have to send the police. It's a crisis. So we've got to create low barriers, low threshold access to mental health services. This is commonplace in Europe. Before it becomes a full-blown crisis, there's a place in your community where you can go talk to someone who maybe has themselves experienced these problems, non-judgmental, no forced medicalization, peer-to-peer oriented, it's a safe place. Maybe you just need to get out of your house for an afternoon. Maybe you need a place to crash for a couple. And maybe you need advice. Should I try medication? How do I find someone to talk to more formally? This is the gateway for that. We've been expanding these programs in New York, and it's reducing the number of 911 calls because people's needs are being met before it becomes a crisis. Another part of the program has to be some kind of crisis response, because even if we put in place preventative measures, sometimes there will be a crisis, and especially as we wait for those things to be put in place. So we can look at Denver, not too far from here. Denver's STAR program has become a national model for how to do this. It's a completely civilian response integrated into the 911 system. It's been incredibly successful. A new report was just released last week about this. It's saving them money. 
because it's reducing the cost in jail time, emergency room time, police time. It's meeting people's needs. It's reducing police violence. And crime is going down in communities that it operates. They brought in outside evaluators. They paired neighborhoods that have the teams and those that didn't with similar demographic characteristics. And the communities with these teams, rather than just policing, the crime rate is going down. Because some of the people causing problems in the community were acting out because of their mental health problems. And if we're addressing their mental health problems, they don't have the same negative impact on the community. It's making us safer, it's cheaper, and there's less violence. The last six months, I've been uh, working in New York, New Jersey, just across the river from New York City, a community that has a long history, serious problems, high levels of community violence. The mayor there, Ros Baraka, responding to the protests of 2020, decided to take money out of the police budget to create an office of violence prevention and trauma recovery. And both elements are essential, violence prevention and trauma recovery. And he's been able to leverage that local money to get state, federal, and philanthropic dollars, which has helped him to build out a whole infrastructure of community-based violence reduction and trauma recovery. Trauma recovery is central because one of the things we know about people who commit acts of violence is that they have almost always been the victims of violence. A kid who shoots someone, that's never the first act of violence that they've experienced or been associated with. They've experienced violence in their homes, in their communities, in ways that have never been addressed. That trauma has never been validated and treated in some kind of meaningful way. So just like with mental health, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. We need a whole infrastructure. They call it an ecosystem in Newark. They're identifying high-risk young people, trying to involve them in pro-social activities, and make intensive individualized trauma counseling available to them, and supporting them materially. The same places that provide recreational services and counseling also have a laundry room and a food bank and money for to keep families from getting evicted and access to tutors so that they don't fail out of algebra, you know, they don't drop out of school because they fail their algebra class. They're thinking holistically about the needs of these young people and the community. In addition, they're doing crisis response. They have teams in the local hospitals so that if a young person comes in as a victim of violence, they are assigned someone from their own neighborhood to work with them, but also with the families and friends who show up at the hospital who wanna know, Jimmy, who did this to you? Who are we gonna go get, right? Perpetuating the cycle of violence. When Newark started this project, they did some research about the patterns of gun violence in Newark. It turned out almost 80% of the gun violence in Newark was about personal beefs. It was not about organized drug gangs. It was not kids warring in gangs over territory. It was not armed robberies. It was 
Jimmy did something to Johnny, and now Johnny's cousin is going to go get this guy's brother, but then this person gets shot by accident. Now they're mad at this person. Now I'm carrying a gun because everybody's shooting at each other so that when someone looks at me funny at a traffic light, now I feel the need to show that gun, which then causes that person to pull their gun right, and things escalate. So how do you break that cycle of violence? Turns out policing is almost completely ineffective at this just doesn't work because they don't know the dynamics in the community and no one in these communities trusts them because they're busy waging a war on drugs and a war on crime and a war on gangs, a war on immigrants, all this nonsense. But there are people in the community who do know what's going on and who are sick of the violence, who have experienced horrible trauma in their own lives, who are taking that pain and turning it into healing, turning it into power for the community. This is why these have to be community-based interventions. It has to be people who have skin in the game, who are in the same social networks, who've had the same community experiences, who have a reputation in the community, who can call up Jimmy and say, I know you're mad about this. But let's talk about it. Are you sure Johnny is really the one responsible for this? There was an incident like that recently. Someone well-known in the community was killed. And everyone knew that that person had a beef with someone. And so they all assumed that that other person was responsible. And immediately, people in the community went looking for that person. But the crisis responders, they call them high-risk interventionists in New York, Sometimes they're called credible messengers, uh, violence interrupters, et cetera. They got on the phone trying to find that person, figure out what's going. Turned out that person was in another state that night that the shooting happened. It was, you know, there was clear evidence. The person was nowhere near where it happened. So that credible messenger, that high-risk interventionist, was able to put the word out in the community, say, don't go looking for this guy. It was not him. And they were believed because they have a reputation in the community. They're a known quantity. Police didn't know any of this happened. They just put yellow tape around the body and were like, well, no one will help us. No one will tell us who did it. These interventions work. Crime in Newark is at a 60-year low. Violent crime in Newark is at a 60-year low. The pandemic uptick that everyone experienced, they didn't. Because it's not an add-on it's not a partnership with the police the way too much of the work here is. It's a fundamental rethinking of how communities can address violence on their own terms. Go back to the beginning of the story, the issue of domestic violence. We can do the same thing there. My friend Lee Goodmar, she's run a domestic violence law clinic at the University of Maryland for over 20 years, helping people get restraining orders, figuring out testimony in court. She recently wrote a book called Decriminalizing Domestic Violence. She said in her over 20 years doing this work through the criminal legal system, no women have been helped. It doesn't work. It gives the illusion of processing these complaints and taking action, but the vulnerability remains. Guy gets incarcerated for a week, comes out, he's more angry than he was going in, tracks her down, shoots her. This happens all the time. And then the police put yellow tape around it and put the guy in prison for a while. That's not a solution to the problem. That's perpetuating the problem. We have to get out of this mindset 
that the only possible mechanism for producing public safety is the mobilization of violence workers to implement more punishment. Need for strategies that are rooted in care, passion, solidarity, not in fanciful ways, but that involve people taking real accountability for their actions in a way that the criminal justice system is extremely ineffective at doing. What's the old adage about prison? Everyone says they're innocent in there. Prison is not a place where people actually take responsibility or forced to confront uh, what they've done, or more importantly, take steps to prevent it from happening again take steps to repair the harms that they've caused. We just assume magically that punishment somehow has this transformative effect on them. But let's go back to the war on drugs. We put literally millions of human beings into cages and anyone in our society can get any kind of drugs whenever they want them. I know there are a number of students in the room. If your grade in the class you're taking depended upon whether or not you could get illegal drugs, is there anyone who would be at risk of failing who doesn't know who they would call to get the ball rolling on that? But some of us older folks, we may not know anymore who to call, but anybody who, you know, any high school kid in America could get any kind of drugs they want whenever they want. And the reason the vast majority of them don't take drugs is not because the police have made it difficult. It's because their lives are pretty good. They're happy about their schools. They have solid home lives. These are the things that prevent the problems of drugs, not putting more police in the schools, creating more youth narcotics units, which has been how some places have responded to the fentanyl crisis, is to further increase the punishments, further increase the violence needed out, further fill the prisons in ways that just makes the problem worse. The way we got fentanyl in the first place is because of the way we criminalized opioids. We gave license to the pharmaceutical companies to flood the market with cheap pills for prescriptions in ways that were medically unnecessary, right? They were sending hundreds of thousands of pills a month to little towns in West Virginia. It couldn't possibly have been for appropriate medical purposes. And then when that started to produce obvious harms, the solution was to cut off the supply of the pills. So the DEA steps in and starts trying to cut off the pills, which sounds good on the surface, except it doesn't acknowledge the fact that huge numbers of people have become physically dependent on the pills. Turning off the supply does not in any way solve the problem. The problem is people need medical assistance and weaning themselves off of the opioids. But none of that was provided, just policing. So what do people do? They turn to street heroin, which is more dangerous. At least with the pills, you knew what you were getting. People could moderate, manage their dosing. So there weren't that many overdoses. When the problem was OxyContin, it was not producing that many overdoses. There were some, of course. The overdoses came because of the black market supply. And the iron law of prohibition is that when we make something illegal, it becomes more concentrated and more dangerous. That's what happened during prohibition. Before the prohibition of alcohol, 85% of alcohol consumption in the United States was beer and wine. Spirits was very small. With prohibition, it flipped on its head. 
Because who's going to smuggle beer from Canada when you can smuggle bonded whiskey at 10 times the concentration, 20 times the concentration? It's just more efficient. So people turn to drinking spirits. And of course, many of them are homemade, adulterated, people have overdoses, blind. The harm came from the prohibition. It's the same thing with opioids. First, you get street heroin and then fentanyl. Because fentanyl is intensely more concentrated impact than heroin. So if you're going to smuggle drugs into the country per pound, fentanyl is a thousand or a hundred times more profitable. So of course, fentanyl gets put in everything. And that's when the overdoses go through. Solution to that is not more policing. It's safe testing sites. It's safer consumption sites and possibly some form of legalization that allows people who are addicted to get a controlled supply. This has been done in the UK for a big chunk of the 20th century. People could go to a doctor and get a prescription for heroin. Results were extremely positive. Overdoses plummeted, people reduced their usage, and they went back to work because they didn't have to spend all day stealing stuff, finding a drug dealer, finding a place to use, and revolving their whole lives around their drug use. We really cared about public health, public safety. We would pursue these strategies instead. So that's the tough message, is how do we move from a system that has no evidence to support its utility but is ingrained in our culture, in our popular culture. Every cop show we watch every night says, oh, without the police, we have the purge, and that it's the police or nothing. Well, the solution, our job, my challenge to you, is to give people other choices, to say to people, we don't have to accept the false choice of policing backed up by jails and prisons or nothing. There are alternatives all across the country, Around the world, people are figuring this out. In Kansas City, too. Thank you. Uh, if anyone has questions. I'm just curious about your thoughts on the word abolition and maybe how you do and don't use it in your work, both public talks and written work. So I I had the I had the deal to write this book, The End of Policing, uh, before Ferguson happened. No one was talking about policing. You know, there was scholarship about how to make policing more effective and the kind of technical scholarship, which I had been well aware of. I was publishing in those journals, et cetera. So I was aware of abolition as a concept, mostly from prison abolitionists. And self-consciously, I was trying to take some of those ideas and apply them to policing, which I think is much more challenging than the concept of prison abolition. So I was self-consciously aware of it, but I didn't feel like there was the space to have that conversation when I started that project. The publisher wanted to call the book Abolishing the Police, and I said, well, that isn't exactly what the book says, and I don't think that's helpful to start the conversation. So let me just say briefly, abolition, and I consider myself an abolitionist. To me, abolitionist, abolitionist it's three things. It's an analysis that says that policing and prisons are fundamentally problematic intervention, that they are 
historically and contemporarily tools of reproducing inequality. But they don't solve problems for most you know, people. They solve problems for very powerful. And so we should try to get those institutions out of our lives in as many ways as we possibly can, which leads to the second aspect, which is it's a process. There's no magical switch that can just turn off the police, close all prisons, I don't have the power to cancel any police departments. No one else in this room does either, right? These institutions exist. They're incredibly powerful. They're integrated into all aspects of our lives. What we have to do is we have to begin unwinding that one rational, evidence-based step at a time. Let's get them out of the schools, get them out of mental health response, get them out of the war on drugs, and then see where we are. We don't have a solution to something right now. We work on something else. We come back to that. And then finally, it's a set of values. You know, it says that we should solve our problems by treating people with dignity, by acting in, in solidarity with people, by building community power, not through punishment, control, coercion, and violence. Thank you. I'm wondering if you can tell us more specifically about the role of public safety in abolition. You know, in a way, I'm a I'm an, an outlier as a spokesperson on this issue. It's just an unusual set of historical circumstances. But if we look at most of the movements in community for abolition, it's people in both the most policed and least safe communities for whom policing has not been a solution to their problems. And so it is driven by a desire for public safety. And one of the leading causes of unsafety has been police harassment, violence, and death. You know, between five, seven, eight percent of all homicides in the United States are committed by police. And that means in certain communities, it's 10, 15 percent of all homicides. How is that a public safety intervention? So these communities, they want safety from those in the community who commit harms, but they also want safety from police and incarceration. I have a question now about this second element of abolition, the, the process of dismantling and building. Um, and I'd like to bring it more to the Kansas City context. Um, I was delighted to hear you on KCUR yesterday talking to Steve Brasky about um, state, um, state control rather than local control of the KCPD budget. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this quirk of police department funding in Kansas City can limit us and what ways we can maybe get creative around it if we're looking to engage in this process. Yeah, so you have these, these twin dynamics at work, right, where the state controls the operation of the police department, the kind of internal budget within the police department. And, and in addition, the state is trying to tell you how to run the city budget by requiring, you know, 25% of the city budget going to policing. Uh, they're both, you know, deeply problematic, but I'm really much more concerned about the second because my goal is not to rearrange which units get the, whatever the amount of money is. My goal is to rearrange the city budget. And I think we have to ask some pretty tough questions about the state government, right? If the state government was really motivated by a concern for public health and public safety in doing this, they wouldn't tie the city's hands in this way. They would offer support, they would give advice, they would provide more resources. This is a culture war. It's a completely ideological, politically driven battle that 
is not at all intended to serve the interests of the people of Kansas City. So let's just be clear about that. I think, you know, you're, you're I mean, and there's still the possibility of uh, an appeals court ruling, so let's keep our fingers crossed about that. But I think the, the short-term strategy has to be to double down on investing in community-centered strategies for addressing your public safety problems. And the first step to doing that is assessing what those problems are, which goes way beyond doing some crime statistics, right? I mean, first of all, the vast majority of violent crime is never even reported to the police because people have so little confidence in that system. And the crimes that are reported are often misclassified, most are not solved, many are not even investigated in any meaningful way. So we got to really talk to communities about what the nature of the problem is, which includes things that we don't normally think of as criminal justice related, like asthma rates, eviction rates, climate change related flooding, heat concerns. We need cooling centers now in the summer in a way, in summers in a way we never did before. So we need to assess all those things. And then that allows us to break down those false choices and say, oh, if this is really what you're concerned about, it turns out there are six examples of other cities who are dealing with this problem in a completely different way. And we don't need to just do exactly what we did, but we can learn from those examples and divide into designing our own response. If police and prisons and jails had to actually prove that anything that they do works, they would be in huge trouble. Huge trouble. I mean, we grossly overestimate the effectiveness of these institutions. Yesterday, I was at Columbia University, where a faculty member there who's a former head of probation, a former head of corrections in New York and D.C. and other cities, released a book saying that probation and parole have been a 100% historical failure. They provide no public safety at all. The research is unequivocal. Every probation commissioner in the, and parole, especially commissioner in the country, knows they don't do anything to help us or the people coming out of prison. It's a complete boondoggle, but they're never forced to justify what they do. They can't show any positive outcomes as a result of their interventions. And we spend millions and millions of dollars to pay civil servants to watch people pee into cups. And it just doesn't do anything to help any of us. And this is true with so much of what policing does. We can concretely show it does not work. Traffic enforcement, completely pointless. Every study ever done shows that no police intervention, whether it's traffic safety stops, pretextual stops, has no positive effect on driving behavior. Putting in speed bumps, traffic cameras, changing speed limits, that has a very measurable positive impact. Traffic calming, civil engineering, that works. I always say that when I go to London, the civil engineers have saved my life a dozen times because they paint look left on the ground at the intersection so that I don't walk in front of a bus because as an American, I'm looking right. So we got to really think about what we mean by evidence-based. And of course, a lot of what academics do as evidence, there are problems there too. 
in terms of the assumptions they bring, what kinds of research gets funded, et cetera. What about gun control? Okay, great question. Gun control. You know, I'm not against it. I did grow up with guns. I'm from Texas. Uh, I'm handy with a rifle. Uh, my father hunted most of his life. But I don't think that the way we think about gun control is particularly helpful in solving the kinds of community violence that I'm most concerned about. It's what we call a supply-side strategy. It imagines that the solution to the, the violence is interrupting the supply of the weapons through either manufacturing bans, interdiction on the highways, gun control legislation, et cetera. What it ignores is the demand side. Why are people shooting each other with the guns? There are guns in camp. There's hunting. People have guns in their homes. No one shoots anyone. There's a famous scene in Michael Moore's film, Bowling for Columbine, when he's in Toronto, and he's being told this fact that people have guns, but no one shoots themselves, each other. They don't lock their doors. And then someone is killed in Toronto, and everyone's like, oh, my God, someone's been shot to death. It was someone from Detroit who come over the border with a gun and kills you. So it's, it, I really, it's kind of funny, it is not just about the guns, it's about the people. Why are people turning to guns to solve their problems? Well, of course, every single show they watch on television tells them the way we solve problems is the mobilization of violence. And then everything we see says the way we solve problems in our community is we send people with guns to go solve the problem. And then we're surprised when people like turn to guns as tools of protection and empowerment because the whole society is designed around that logic. So how about we begin to deconstruct that logic, deal with the trauma and securities that lead to gun carrying, gun usage, et cetera. So I would prefer us to focus on demand side strategies. There are more guns and people in circulation in the United States. If we stopped all manufacturing tomorrow, which I don't think is possible, we would still be a washing gun, so we need something other than supply-side strategies. We're hearing Professor Alex Vitale's presentation to the UMKC Cock Affair Lecture on the Politics of Public Safety, Police Reform, and Alternatives. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guest of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea 
or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD.